night. Well, I love the new year. This is one of my favorite times of year. It's a great time to stop and kind of evaluate your life in various areas. We kind of tease about that sometimes, but it's really a healthy thing to do and a good thing to do um, to measure things, uh, set new goals. Nothing wrong with setting goals uh, if they're the right goals and they're healthy goals. Um, And my guess is there are some New Year resolutions that have been made in the room, maybe some that have been spoken out loud and some that have not been spoken out loud. Uh, And sometimes those are good things to do. Uh, Maybe you want to spend more time with your family this year. That's a good one. Um, uh, Maybe you want to eat better, exercise more. Those are kind of the most popular. Uh, Maybe prioritize better in 2017 or pray more. That's a good one. Uh, Read your Bible more faithfully. That's a good one. Uh, maybe you want to be a more generous person, or maybe you want to be more uh, consistent with sharing your faith, or maybe you want to be more loving and kind towards others, or a better, more proactive neighbor. There are just a host of things that I could think about just in your everyday life and in your spiritual life. And the funny thing is, a lot of the things that people, when they start with New Year's resolutions and they start thinking about the kind of person they want to be and things they want to change, many of those things could be massively helped and changed simply by focusing on living out your faith consistently a whole host of those things especially the ones that i just just read uh, some some things are dramatically affected by whether or not we live like we believe god's word is true and god's gospel is true because when you really believe something's true it affects it changes how you approach things and how you approach life and how you approach circumstances you know our New Year's weather here in Florida is awesome, right? It's uh, I mean it's like going to be 80 today. I think it was 72 outside yesterday. It's, I mean it's beautiful. Uh, other parts of the country are not having that weather right as much as we are, especially consistently, right? So that's one of the great things about living in Florida. And in Alabama, this time of year, I mean it can be kind of sporadic. One day it can be 70 degrees, and one day it can be 35 degrees. And every now and then, not super often, but every few years or so, you get a little snow in the winter time in Alabama. And what happens in Alabama where I grew up is when you get snow or any mention of snow, if the weatherman says, hey, it may snow and we're going to expect one to two inches, everybody runs to the grocery store, right? And in Alabama, that might be Publix or Piggly Wiggly or Winn-Dixie or whatever. And everybody runs to the grocery store. And if if you get there like after work, everybody else took off of work and there's no bread on the shelves and there's no water and it's like apocalyptic, right? You're expecting zombies to be roaming the street. It's like the end of the world because there might be one to two inches of snow. And usually there's hardly anything, but every now and then, the weather guys even, you know, often it's even more than that, and you're glad you got your bread or whatever. I don't know why it's bread and water. I don't know why everybody wants that uh, if they're going to be inside for a few days. But anyway, but, you know, we just spent five weeks going through Advent, preparing to celebrate the birth of Christ, and looking in Romans chapter 5 at the, the richness of the gospel and what it offers to us and what we have in Christ. And last week we looked at Luke chapter 2 over the Christmas holiday and at the good news of the first Advent and that announcement of Jesus. And so today I want to say it's critical in 2017 as we start a new year that we live like we believe what we say we believe. That it's critical that we live like the gospel that we've talked about for the last several weeks is true. And in such a way that it's obvious to all, in such a way that in fact, just like sometimes we would look at those people up north would make fun of the people down in the south and say, isn't it funny how they react to one or two inches of snow? They're kind of overreacting. Uh, We should so react to the truth of the gospel that the watching world around us thinks we've really overreacted to the news uh, that has been announced through God's word. Because we're not building our lives based off of, I wonder if this might happen. 
right? Kind of like, you know, it might snow today, or maybe it won't. We know Jesus has come and died for our sins and risen again, and we know he's coming back again, and we know that all of life ultimately revolves around him. So we should live radically devoted like that news is true, like the gospel is true. And so that's my challenge for us today. And I believe the most important decision a Christian can make any year is to live that year like the gospel, like the good news of what Jesus has done is actually real news and true news. And so today's message is in the shadow of Christmas. It's the cradle, the cross, the resurrection kind of cast a shadow over what we're talking about today because we want to live in light of the gospel. And today's message is also in light of the new year that we're beginning today and the new you that all of us deep down inside kind of long for and that every new year is kind of a taste of. We long for newness. We long for change. And for Christians, there's coming a day of glorious change that no new year can compare to where we will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye to be like our Savior. And so as we reach for that, and there's, there's thing, the Spirit of God inside of us longs for that, I want to urge you in 2017 to step towards that in faith by living out your faith, by living like the gospel's true. Now, I want to look at Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, because I believe these are two of the more important verses of all the New Testament. It's all important. But these are critical verses for us to know and understand and to apply our life and to be constantly coming back to and looking at. So let's read it, and then I want to explain the context of why I think this is important in the context of living like the gospel's true in 2017. It's on the screen for you this morning, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You say, I want transformation in 2017. I want to become a better person, a different person. Well, here is, it's all right here, right? As he urges us that way in Romans 12, 1 and 2. But to understand the magnitude of these great verses, we have to remember that they are actually in the larger context of one of the greatest books in all the Bible. In Romans 12, Paul is making a shift. He is moving from theology, in a sense, to application. He says, I appeal to you, therefore... That therefore makes us look back in light of everything he said. Not just in the last chapter. And in chapters 10 and chapters 11, he, he talks about some incredible things. And he talks about the mercy of God a lot in those chapters. But really, it's in light of all of those 11 chapters. He's moving, in a sense, from doctrine to application. In those first 11 chapters, he talks about the doctrine of sin and the nature of man and how we have Adam's nature when we're born into this world and about God's judgment against sin, about the death of Christ and the place of sinners, about the resurrection of Christ for our justification, about how we're saved by grace through faith and how the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, how there's a future home for us in glory that's assured, and how the Holy Spirit is a, is a testimony to that. I mean, just incredible truths, gospel truths, right? Things that are true because the gospel's true, just all through those 11 chapters. Just some of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. And then in verse 12, he's saying, Now therefore, because all that's true, because the gospel's true, because Jesus did die in your place and rose again, because the Spirit of God does live inside of you, does live inside of you if you're a believer, because all those things are true, because you cannot ever be separated from God's love in Jesus Christ, because all this is true, because whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Because all of this is true, therefore, do this, live this way. You know, he's saying you need to move from knowing some things are true to living like some things are true. 
You need to apply these truths to your life. And one of the worst things that can happen to a person is to never move from doctrine or teaching to application and living. To never take what we know to be true and to apply it to our life because we are accountable to God for what we know. To whom much is given, much is expected. And it's a horrible thing, a terrible thing for someone to know things and to know things are true and to not live in light of that truth. And so Paul doesn't want us to do that and I don't want us to do that. And we need to live every day and every year as a Christian, if you're a believer this morning, like the gospel is true. And one of the worst things that can happen to you is that you don't do that. So I want to give you three ways this morning that, out of this text that I believe can help us in 2017 live like the gospel is true. And the first one is, number one, we need to choose to live in light of God's mercy. And this new year and every year and every day, Make the choice to live in light of God's mercy. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. He immediately inserts the mercies of God because, man, that is what has been his anthem and his theme for much of those first 11 chapters is the mercy of God. In fact, in chapters 10 and 11 alone, he mentions God's mercy 10 times. But the whole book runs thick with God's mercy. All the way back in that first thematic verse in Romans 1.16 when he says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, right? That is God's mercy at work in salvation. In chapter 2, verse 4, he says, God's kindness is meant to lead sinners to repentance. God in his mercy and his kindness. In verses 23 through 26 of Romans 3, he tells us that sinners can be justified before God through faith in Christ. That's mercy. In chapter 4, verse 25, he tells us Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In chapter 5, he tells us we can have peace with God through Christ Jesus. In chapter 6, he tells us in Christ, we're dead, outside of Christ, we're, de we're, we're dead in our sin, but in Christ, we're dead to our sin and alive to God and set free from our sin. In chapter 7, 25, he says we can have victory over sin through our Lord Jesus Christ who gives us the victory. In chapter 8, he tells us there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He goes on to tell us we're indwelt by the Spirit, that we're heirs with Christ. And he says that God is working for the good of those who love him. In chapter 9, one of those difficult chapters, the sovereign God we see shows mercy to undeserving sinners. In chapter 10, we see that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord in genuine faith will be saved. In chapter 11, we see as God rejected his people, did God re reject Israel? He says, no, God has not rejected his people, but in fact he has sent salvation to the Gentiles and offers salvation to all. And so all through, God's mercy is evident in chapters 1 through 11. And so Paul is beckoning them in light of all that he has wrote, and he's beckoning me and you in light of all that he's wrote as he writes them, and so he writes us, to live in light of the mercy of God. And I believe living out your faith in Christ starts with living in light of the mercy God has shown you. Worship is a response, right? There's revelation and response. We, we see and we understand who God is. We, the God's word teaches us who God is. We behold who God is and we respond with worship. And the Christian life should be a response to what we've seen in God's mercy and God's grace. God's mercy is Him and His love not giving us what we deserve. But the word can actually also be translated compassion. God's showing compassion towards us. You know, and it's different once you've experienced God's mercy versus just reading about God's mercy. Totally changed. Because experience changes everything. Kind of like becoming a parent. Before you were a parent, you heard about what it was going to be like to be a parent. You heard it was hard. You heard sometimes you don't get to sleep much. You heard sometimes, you, you hear all these things. 
And but as a young adult, as a single adult, you think, well, it can't be that bad, right? They're doing it, and they're kind of a moron. I, you know, you look at other people, and you're like, look at them. They're doing it. I can do this. And then you put that first child in the car to drive home from the hospital, and you go 10 miles per hour for 25 miles, right? Because you're scared to death. And you begin to experience parenthood, whether it's sleepless nights or a child that won't eat or whether it's, you know, a, a two-year-old's tantrum, right? And you begin to, be ta- and you begin to experience parenthood. Now you know really what it's like to be a parent. It's totally different. The light bulb is on. The aha moment is on. You know more than you knew before, and everything's different because experience changes things. And it's one thing when you read God's Word and what it says about God's mercy, but Christians aren't people that have simply read about God's mercy. Christians are people that have experienced God's mercy, that have tasted God's mercy, that knows what it's like to have God's mercy be shown to them in their life. And that's supposed to change everything. We're supposed to live in light of that. Think about Paul. Think about who he was when we knew him as Saul at the beginning of the book, book of Acts. If you don't know much about him, he, he was a, the chief persecutor of the church. In fact, the first time we hear about him, his name is Saul, and he's standing by as the first martyrdom happens in the New Testament when Stephen, this great man of faith, is being stoned to death for preaching the gospel, and Paul, Saul, is standing there with their jackets, their cloaks, laying at his feet, and the Bible says he's given hearty approval. He's rejoicing in a godly man's death. I think his hands tremored when he wrote about the mercy of God. Talk about mercy. Talk about mercy. A man who celebrated the murder of one of God's chief servants. A man who thought Jesus was just a liar. Who God so radically saved and changed on the road to Damascus that he becomes the chief prophet of the New Testament. The the apostle that writes most of what we read from then on in the New Testament. God's choice vessel in many ways. He understood something of the mercy of God. How about you? Where would you be today without God's mercy? Here's a hint. It's not good, right? I would be in, every one of us would be in hell apart from the mercy of God. But if you're a Christian today, you've experienced, you've tasted God's mercy. You've tasted God's grace. And we need to live in light of that every day, a cross-centered life that constantly remembers the mercy of God he has shown us in our life. Real change starts there. Number two, we need to choose to present all of our life to God in worship. We need to make the choice to not only live in light of his mercy, but choose to present all of life to God in worship. He says, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He pleads with them. He urges with them, right? This is not just some you know, hey, you should do this. This, He's urging with all that is within him, live this way, present your bodies. To present means to make available, to offer. There's no area in your life that should be off limits to God, in other words. There's no area where you you should avoid complete obedience. All of our life, including the body. Why is he making a big deal out of the body? Because what he's saying is all of your life and the body counts, right? He's not just limiting it to the body. Body, it just means the entirety of you. But that your body, your physical body counts. So does your mind, so does your heart, so does your actions, your attitudes, thinking. Well, see, in Roman thought in that day, during that time, one of the heresies that Paul had to battle was there was, the pop, one of the popular thoughts was that your spirit and soul was all that really mattered and that your body was basically evil. And so... Your body and what you did with it didn't really matter because the spirit was good, body was evil. And so they were so focused on the spirit and soul 
that they found the body to be worthless. And they didn't think much of uniting their body with a temple prostitute or something like that. Gross perversions because what the body doesn't matter. The body's actually evil. You need to worry about your spirit. You need to worry about the inner man. Don't worry about what happens out here in the real world. Well, all that matters is what happens in here. And which is a completely anti-Christian thought. Christianity teaches that your body is going to be raised from the dead and glorified with Christ if you're a believer in Christ. That your physical body actually matters and what you do with it. The body is not worthless. It matters. Jesus became flesh and dwelt in a... The Son of God became a man. Right? So what happens in the body absolutely matters. Christianity proclaims that. And it's very different from the thoughts of that day because it said what you do in the body really matters. The human body matters. In our culture today, many would say that what you do with your body does not matter. Our culture is not a lot different from that culture. There are many who would say you can love God and do what you want to with your body as long as you don't hurt anybody. They say you can sleep with whomever you want to or long as you love them, some would, some might would go that far, as long as you love them, as long as you're committed to them in that moment. But what you do with your body is your business. Where you go, what you do, what you think, all those things is up to you. But that's not a Christian worldview. That is, that is a distinctly unchristian thought. That is not a gospel thought. Because if Christ is Lord, Christ is Lord. The old saying is, he's Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And he demands our entire life, even our body, to be yielded to him as a living sacrifice. In the Old Testament, they used to kill animals to make atonement for their sins. Worship involved sacrificing an animal so they could come before God. And in the New Testament, everything has changed because the ultimate, final Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, has been sacrificed. And we don't need goats or bulls. We have Jesus who died one death for all. And we place our faith in Him who has risen from the dead, from the dead who lives and makes intercession for us, the Bible says, even now. So worship for us doesn't involve bringing a dead animal before God because the, true, the, the, the one person that all that was pointing to, the Lord Jesus Christ, has already been sacrificed 2,000 years ago. And so Christ died and rose again and ended all that. However, worship does involve bringing a living sacrifice to God. And that living sacrifice is you, it's me. As those who have trusted in Jesus, who is our sacrifice, now we live our lives in light of the gospel. We live living for Christ, presenting our bodies to him, presenting our, all of our lives, all that we are to him as living sacrifices. He says it's to be a holy sacrifice. In the Old Testament, God wanted a spotless lamb without blemish. Now since God has made us holy in Christ... He sees us as holy because Christ is holy. That's who we are. Did you know that? That's your identity if you're a Christian. See, I don't feel very holy. God says you're holy. He says you're beloved. He says you're chosen. That's who you are in Jesus. We now are to live that out by living holy lives practically, yielding to Christ and his lordship in every area of our lives. He says we're to be acceptable. Our lives holy and acceptable. You know, every sacrifice in the Old Testament wasn't acceptable to God. Those blemished sacrifices weren't acceptable. In fact, Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14, God just really puts the priest of that day in their place. He harshly rebukes them for offering unacceptable sacrifices. They offered blind animals and things of that nature. And in doing so, God said that they were despising his name. He was insulted. He wanted them to, he said, literally, I wish you would just shut the doors and just stop. Just close the temple down if you're going to do that. This half-hearted, kind of, sort of offering me an offering instead of what I demand. 
But now we're in the New Testament. And we should be a people that take seriously that our lives and bodies are to be presented to God as living sacrifices because it is Jesus who has made us acceptable. See, I'm acceptable to God not because of what I bring. I'm acceptable to God because of what Jesus has done for me. In Christ, I'm acceptable. Outside of Christ, I'm completely unacceptable. Outside of Christ, I can't make myself acceptable. But in Christ, I am acceptable. And now I'm to live my life in that response, surrendered to Him. Everything that happens with my body, my mind, and so on and so forth. And to not take that serious, to not take serious the thought that my body belongs to God, my mind belongs to God, my will belongs to God, that everything in all of my life, 24-7, not one hour a week on Sunday, but 24-7 is to be lived in worship to God, is to not take worship serious because that's what real worship is, and that's to not take God serious. If we don't give our lives, surrender our lives to God and worship daily by presenting our lives to Him in worship, we're not taking him very serious. He says, this is your spiritual worship. Doing this is your spiritual worship. Or it can also be translated, your rational worship. It makes sense. It's the worship that you render now in this body. It's a worship issue. Living for God's glory in every area. It's the responsibility of the blood-bought believer. And if you're going to live like the gospel is true, it's going to involve you making the conscious choice to present all of your life and yield all of it to God in worship. Robert Mounts writes, holiness of life rarely progresses apart from deliberate acts of the will. While sanctification, growth in Christ, is gradual in the sense that it continues throughout life, each advance depends upon a decision of the will. You've got to choose. You've got to make some hard choices sometimes. Some difficult choices to root some things out of your life and to put some other things in your life. Today, for some, that means some new decisions need to be made. Not just because it's the new year, but just because there's some new decisions that needs to be made. A sinful pattern needs to be broken. A new godly pattern needs to be begun. Old habits need to die. New habits need to start. A relationship might need to be ended. A relationship might need to be mended. A new godly relationships need to be strengthened. See, your life will be affected dramatically by the choices you make. And to some degree, we are our choices. And the question is, are you willing to make hard choices in your spiritual journey? If not, how serious are we really about our faith? We've got to choose to not only live in light of God's mercy, but we've got to make the conscious choice to, in light of the gospel to present our bodies, all of our lives, to God in worship. And thirdly, we need to choose to be transformed, not to conform. Do not be conformed to this world. In a sense, I think in verse 2, he's explaining how to carry out verse 1. How do I do this? How do I live my life and, as a living sacrifice? All this pretty language, all this Old Testament imagery. How do I do this? Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He says, do not be conformed. That's in the passive tense. In other words, stop letting this happen to you or don't let this happen to you. It's something you're to prevent from happening to you. This is a change that doesn't come from within, but it comes from pressure without. Think about that. Conforming to the world is not something, he says, the way it's written in the Greek is not something that happens from the inside out. It's something that comes from a pressure from without for you to become something you're not supposed to be. New Testament scholar K.S. Woost writes of this Greek word for conformed that it refers to the act of an individual assuming an outward expression that does not come from within nor is it representative of his true heart life, inner heart life. 
He says, do not be conformed. Do not be pressured into change. What? To this world. Do not be conformed to the pattern of the world. The age in which we live. The world system is what he's talking about. All that is broken and flawed and tainted. Motivated by selfishness and pride and greed and lust. You know what the world is. You, you see it. It invades our culture. It invades thoughts. It invades everything. It's anti-God. It's anti-Christ. It's everything that's going in the direction opposed to the will and the way of God. It's a way of life and thinking that's an absolute rebellion against the Creator. He says, do not be conformed to this world. He's saying, as a believer, you're not of the world. All, all through the New Testament you see that. You belong to Jesus. And you're God's beloved, holy, chosen people. So don't let the world make you into something that you're not. Don't buy into the world system, which is actually rebellious against God. You know, when I was a kid, I used to introduce myself a lot of times as Clark Kent. Now, you know who Clark Kent is, right? That's Superman. And that was cute when I was three or four years old. When I was about Cannon's age, you know, and I'd be at the mall, and some guy would say, what's your name? And I would say, Clark Kent. You know, I don't remember it, but, I, you know, my mom still tells these stories, right? And that's cute when you're three or four. But if I walked into the pulpit next week and I had some glasses and had taken up, you know, moonlighting at the Orlando Sentinel, you'd be concerned. At 36, almost 37, if I was still introducing myself as Clark Kent, you say, that's not, that's not healthy. Something's not right in the head. Something's wrong there. It's abnormal to continue to pretend to be somebody you're not, right? Halloween's once a year. And it's unhealthy, and it's abnormal, and it's weird when a Christian behaves like the world and begins to be conformed like the world. As Woost says, it's masquerading. It's pretending to be something that God says you're not. It's abnormal. It's unhealthy. And at some point, if it continues unbroken, at some point you realize, well, maybe they're not even a Christian. Maybe they're not pretending to be someone. Maybe that's who they are. Because it's that abnormal. So don't be conformed to the world. He says, that means the world's views. That means the world's way of life. How the world thinks about life. How the world thinks about sexuality. How the world thinks about gender. How the world thinks about all these different areas. Don't pursue the world's way of thinking about relationships or parenting or marriage or money. But pattern your life after God's way. But the world wants to mold you. There's a pressure in this language, there's a pressure that is coming from without trying to mold you so that you'll take on the world's views and way of life. You begin to feel weird for what you believe or how you live because it's seen as unnatural and abnormal and weird in the world. It seems weird to the world that you give that much money away. It seems weird to the world that you discipline your children that way. It seems weird to the world that you hold the views on sexuality and marriage that you hold. It seems weird. It seems weird. He's saying, hold strong. Do not conform to the world. Live like the gospel is really true. Hold strong. You're not of the world. But listen, the win in this text is not that you simply avoid being worldly. It doesn't end with do not be like the world. The win is transformation. The wind is transformation. And listen, we're always moving one direction or the other. We're either conforming to be more like the world in some pattern or we're transforming to be more like Christ because there's no coasting in the spiritual life. You know, when you coast down a hill on a bicycle or whatever, at some point, unless a hill goes on forever, you're going to slow down, right? Cannon's learned to ride a bike right now. And he'll pedal, you know, and he's going, going, going. Then he'll stop and he slows down. 
You got to keep pedaling. You got to keep going. Or at some point you slow down. There's no coasting in the spiritual life. When we slow down, when we decide to take a break from pursuing Christ, when we decide to become more undisciplined in our walk, we don't, what do we do? We, we begin to be conformed to be more like the world because the pressure is too great from without. So he says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind means to change into another form. That's where we get it. The word there for transform is where we get our word metamorphosis. It's the idea of displaying on the outside what is actually on the inside. It's literally inside-out change. It's what is true on the inside becoming evident on the outside. It doesn't come from pressure without. It comes from internal transformation. It is holy spirit-wrought change. And this is the word used in describing Jesus' transfiguration. It's only used like four times in the New Testament. And two of them are in the Gospels describing when Jesus was transformed before the disciples. You remember the transfiguration? Jesus takes the disciples up on this mountainside. It takes three of them up on this mountainside. It's where they saw him with Moses, talking with Moses. And it says he was transformed, transfigured, transformed before their eyes. And what it is is they, they looked at Christ and they saw his true nature. They saw him in his glory. And they were like just blown away. They get this glimmer, this little, this little glimmer of, of, of his true nature as he's transformed before them. It's also used in 2 Corinthians 3 to talk about Christian transformation. It has a lot to do with what we read in Romans 12. Too. Let me read it to you. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So Paul tells us, be transformed in 2 Corinthians. He says, we are being transformed as we behold the Lord Jesus. He says, this work is a work of the Lord who is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit at work in us. And so transformation, true life change, where you're made more like Jesus, is the Holy Spirit's work. So only a genuine Christian can have this kind of inward life change. And every single genuine Christian will have this life change. And our role is to cooperate with what the Holy Spirit is already actively desiring and working to do. To yield to Him. To choose transformation over confirmation. It's an active choice. So in 2 Corinthians, it's a work of the Spirit as you behold the glory of Jesus. And in Romans, he says it comes by the renewal of your mind. Which means to make new. See, it's all a spirit work. And it actually begins in conversion. Titus 3.5 says... God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So it's a spirit work and it begins at conversion. And apart from Christ, this is why this is so important, because apart from Christ and when we're lost, we have a corrupt mind. Romans 1.28 says, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. We have minds that do what ought not to be done, that go places they shouldn't go, think things they shouldn't think, and think contrary to God's will. We're, that's just our natural bent in this world with Adam's nature as lost people. And when we trust Jesus, we die to the old us, and we're given a completely new nature, and we're given the mind of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old passed away, behold, the new has come. And so there's a renewal that takes place at conversion, then it continues throughout life. That's why Colossians 3.10 says, 3.9 and 10 says, we're to put off the old self with its practices 
and have put on the new self, which is being renewed, present tense. It's being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So we are renewed and we're being renewed. So Paul is calling us to live out our new nature and to yield to the Holy Spirit as he progressively makes us more like Jesus. And this begins in the mind. We're to be renewed in our mind. And instead of thinking according to the pattern of the old man and of the world, we begin, we're supposed to think according to the new nature we have in Christ, being made like Christ. And this leads to transformation in how you live. And it'll lead to you giving all of your life over to God as a living sacrifice. You see, when you renovate or renew something, and that word can also, it means to renovate. Renew, renovate. When you do that with something, you're, you're making it new again. Right? You're renewing it. And there's no transformation in anything without renovation. And there's no transformation in your life spiritually without renovation. There is no transformation without renovation. And that doesn't matter if it's a sports team that needs to be rebuilt from a loser into a winner. Some players have to go and some new players have to come in, right? It doesn't matter if it's um, a condo or a home being remodeled. Modeled. Some things have to go out, some new things, appliances and floors come in. Out with the old, in with the new. That's the process of renovation. That's the process of renewal. And this has to happen in your mind continually as we continue to pursue and become more like Christ and to grow and to change spiritually. Because see, your mind is a spiritual battlefield. That's why he says you need to be renewed in your mind. It's a battlefield. You say, I don't believe my mind's a spiritual battlefield. Well, let me tell you what. This is why, this is all the proof you need, is that you won't be able, some of us won't even hardly remember what the message was on today, Monday. But we remember all the ways people wronged us 20 years ago. Because your mind is a spiritual battlefield. And it's why you can read your Bible and not remember half of what you read. And I can still remember the words to Ice Ice Baby from the early 1990s. Because <laughs> it's a battlefield, right? That's why you can go golfing and remember every shot on 18 holes and all the ones you missed and every cell ad that passed before your eyes or whatever it is, but we can't seem to hold on to some spiritual things that we want to hold on to so bad sometimes. It's because our mind is a spiritual battlefield and there's a wet war that has to be waged there for what's important and what's eternal. We're to set our mind on the things above. It's a conscious choice we have to make because, as I believe it was D.A. Carson that says, we don't drift towards holiness. It doesn't happen. H.A. Ironside writes, as the mind is occupied with Christ and the affections set on things above, we become like him who has won our hearts for himself. That is 2 Corinthians 3.18. As we behold the glory of the Lord, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. Spiritual growth happens as we behold Jesus and consider Jesus and think on Jesus. And let me ask you, what do you think, since this is a spirit's work, what do you think is his primary tool in doing that? Where do you see Jesus? In this corrupt, broken, fallen world, where do we see Jesus? We see Jesus in the scriptures. We behold Jesus in the scriptures. The Genesis to Revelation, it's about Jesus. It's all about him. We learn about his character, his works, his glory, his nature, his gospel. And the Word of God is the Spirit of God's most powerful tool in your spiritual transformation. It's the sword of the Spirit, as Ephesians 6 says. This is why your Bible intake in 2017 is critical to any real life change you want to see happen, or I want to see happen. Absolutely critical. Without it, it does not happen. I don't feel like I'm growing spiritually. I feel like I'm stuck spiritually. Do you regularly and consistently read your Bible? Well, not really. That's why you're not growing spiritually. You mean there's a link there? I'm, I promise you there's a link there. 
(laughs) It's absolutely a link there. And I don't know that I've ever met a Christian who has a regular habit of just being in God's Word who's not growing spiritually. That doesn't mean you don't go through dry times. Doesn't mean you don't go through difficult times. Doesn't mean you never backslide. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, generally speaking, when that is a regular habit in your life, change happens because when God speaks, things happen. The world came into existence. And I'm telling you, when you regularly put God speaking into your life through reading and then taking the Word of God through consistent church attendance and being before the preaching of God's Word, being in a small group and discussing and taking in God's Word, and then throughout the week reading God's Word and thinking on God's Word, how can you not change? God's Word is that powerful. The Spirit of God, now you've got to apply it. You can't just be a hearer, you've got to be a doer. But I'm telling you, when you take God's Word and you put it in your life and you begin to apply it in your life, things are going to move, things are going to change, and new things are going to come about in your life, and new patterns and new habits, and new dis- all this stuff's going to begin changing in your life because God's Word's that powerful. And it's how the Holy Spirit brings about life change. So make a plan this year in 2017. Commit to some form of whatever it is of being committed to the Scriptures. Have a plan for your Bible intake. Have a plan for studying the scriptures. Whether that plan takes you through the Bible in a year, which I encourage, or it takes you through the New Testament in a year, or whatever it is, just have a plan. How silly is it? And how misplaced are our priorities if we have a plan for a diet and for exercise and no plan for spiritual growth? I encourage you to do that this year. You know, I heard someone say that many of us, we treat the Bible like the Apple user agreement. If you've got an iPhone, you know what I'm talking about. You get that app, every time you download the new Apple user agreement, there's about way more tiny words than any of us ever want to read. So we all go, accept. Right? And a lot of people treat the Bible that way. They say, I believe the Bible. I accept accept that it's true. I believe it. Then read it. You know what's in there? You sure? Right? We shouldn't treat God's word that way, right? We need to know. We need to be in it and understanding what it says if we say we accept it and we believe it. So it's critical for 2017 if you're going to change spiritually and grow spiritually that you get in God's word. You notice what happens as we live in light of God's mercy, as we present our bodies to God as living sacrifices, all of life to God in worship, and as we choose to be transformed, not be conformed to the world, what happens is, is that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The renewed mind can see, know, and savor the will of God. The idea of the phrase someone said is to, quote, find out the worth by putting it to use or testing it in actual practice. That's what that phrase there means. Test, by testing, you may discern. Charles Hodge said it this way. The design and result when of that great change, the design and result of that great change of which Paul speaks is that Christians should know, delight in, and practice whatever is good and acceptable to God, which is his will. Know it. Delight in it and practice. You know it because it's chiefly his word. That's the revealed will of God. And you not just know it, but delight in it and practice it. See, as you're transformed by God, you'll become someone who knows God's will, does God's will, and loves God's will. And is there any more evidence that you believe the gospel than that you know and practice and love the will of God? And see, when you choose to live in light of God's mercy and when you choose to present all of your life to God in worship and when you choose to be transformed and not conformed, you will be living like the gospel is true. 
And if you'll do that in 2017, you'll have made the most important spiritual decision that you can make. And you'll grow spiritually. And you'll be a better spouse because of that. And you'll be a better parent because of that. And you'll be a better employee or employer because of that. A better neighbor, a better son, daughter, brother, or sister. And you will grow increasingly victorious over sins in your life. Because what you need most in 2017 is the Spirit of God to work in your life. And for you to happily participate. Now, for some this morning, that might mean that you've never genuinely experienced the mercy of God and the gospel in your life. That's where transformation, and that's where real change begins. So if there's never been a time in your life where you realize you're a sinner, and you realize that you are only deserving of God's punishment, but that God loves you, and that he loves you so much that he sent his son to die in your place and rose again, if you've never turned from your sin and embraced Christ and his death and his resurrection to save you from your sins, if you've never repented and believed the gospel, that's what you need to do today. And So I encourage you today to choose Jesus, to come to Jesus, to trust Jesus today, that's where real change begins. Begins with looking to the God of mercy in Christ. Will you choose this year, if you're a Christian, to live in light of God's mercy and to present your life to God in worship, to be transformed by the renewal of your mind, not conformed to this world? Will you make those choices? That's going to that's gonna have to be a choice you make every day. You can't just make that on January 1. You've got to make it again on January 2nd and February 25th and March the 3rd and April the 14th. and May, I mean, on and on and on. You've got to make it every single day. Participating with what God wants to do and yielding to the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.